All right, to sound check here, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had, uh, that's a good question. What did I have for breakfast? I think I had some coffee and come to think of it, I don't even think I ate breakfast. <laughs> Just coffee? Yeah. I don't think that's my normal uh, routine, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was today. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit through conversations with extraordinary people. We are here to learn the skills we can use to intentionally create the life we want to live. Within these conversations lie all sorts of lessons learned, epiphany moments, and techniques to navigate the messiness of life, as shared with us by the people living through it. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today I'm joined by Srini Rao. He's a son, a brother, host and founder of The Unmistakable Creative, which is a podcast and website for creatives, misfits, and people who don't feel like they belong anywhere else on the internet. And Srini, so back in 2013, you self-published this book called The Art of Being Unmistakable, which was a collection of blog posts from your blog at the time. And then that actually ends up becoming a Wall Street Journal bestseller, which I think is amazing. So congrats on that. But what I'm really curious about and what kind of drew me to your story was this feeling that at that time, after the book becomes a Wall Street bestseller, the money isn't really enough to keep you going and you start to kind of enter this low point, like you had a nice high and then you start to feel like you're entering a low point with your creativity. But at that time, you didn't want to share that with your audience necessarily. Like you didn't, I got the sense you didn't want them to realize that you were hitting that low point. Yeah. And that piques my interest because I feel like I'm the same way as a creator. Like you get to Mm -hmm. a certain point and you're like, wait, I no longer can tell people that I'm failing or that I'm human anymore. What, Yeah. why weren't you, why didn't you want to share that with people? Like what had changed after that book? Okay. So this is a really timely question um, because I just finished writing this like 9,000 word blog post on the psychology of building an audience. Um, And there's this massive section in it about authenticity and vulnerability. And the thing that people don't understand is that when you're in the public eye, everything you say do and create shapes people's perception of who you are and what you're like as a person. And as you progress with your career, uh, you have a lot more at stake. And, And the truth is that no matter how transparent or authentic any public figure seems, nobody is 100% authentic because it's simply not appropriate for public consumption. Um, there are things that, you know, I jokingly say that I say things on a daily basis to friends and roommates that are a PR crisis in the making. Um, <laughs> and the thing is that when you're in the public eye, what you say and do matters, even if our president doesn't seem to understand that, which is a whole other aside. But there is actually a valuable lesson there. Um, you know, when people just shoot from the hip, say whatever the hell they want, that's not authenticity. That's just ranting and raving. Um, and the thing is, there's this fine line between vulnerability and being a complete train wreck. Now, I know this because I've, I've 
push that line. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, the period in which you're referring to, a lot of difficult things happen all at once. You know, I had a, a relationship that came to an end. Um, you know, the, the high that I was on really kind of just ended up being over, like we were done planning this event. So suddenly, all these things that had meant so much to me were gone, um, you know, followed by some financial challenges. And you know, I was, but keep in mind, at this point, my presence was no longer sort of one that was tiny or, or sort of obscure. Um, and, you know, people knew who I was and, and you know, I'd had this book. And I had uh, a mentor, you know, he, he'd said, you know, I remember meeting with a guy who could have been a potential investor in business. And, you know, I was literally in one of those phases, you know, those breakups where like, it's all you can think about and it's all you can fucking talk about to every single person you meet to the point where they're like, we're done hearing about this. Shut the hell up. Yeah. We're your friends, but we don't care anymore because that's just how humans are. Uh, and I remember, you know, I talked about this to the guy who was supposed to be, you know, a potential investor and my the mentor at the time pretty much tore me a new asshole and rightfully so he's like you're acting like a damn teenager and um you know it, it's funny because i remember uh you know as i was going through this uh, you know i said yeah man but i'm human too and he said yeah Srini, but you don't get to make that excuse because of the position you've put yourself in now the reality is what he was doing was preparing me for a much higher stakes situation so you know right now we're venture funded um, you know, we have uh, we're one of the pod fund portfolio companies. And, you know, the thing is that I am a much more in the public eye than I ever have been before, particularly in the wake of this whole Netflix thing, which you may or may not have heard of. I was on this documentary called Indian Matchmaking, and now it's like been all the rage. And, you know, and, and the thing is, the person I was matched with has been on the receiving end of like endless amounts of like very, very harsh criticism. Um, and, you know, and she didn't say any particularly nice things about me i could go to battle against her on social media i could participate in the you know the basically the bashing of her but why what good is that going to do all that's going to do is make me look like a jackass um i'm hyper aware of the fact that everything that i say and do in the public eye is not just a reflection on me but a reflection on every single person who has invested in me publishers you know literary agents speaking agents editors um you know investors like what I do reflects on them as well. And so, you know, back to the example of the president, because it's just the most obvious one, given that we're talking a day before, you know, the election. But think about the fact that, you know, everybody in Trump's orbit by association is considered an asshole, even if they're not assholes, because of the fact that he behaves the way that he does. And he just says this kind of shit. So, you know what, there's probably some great really kind, wonderful people with good intentions in the Trump administration, as ridiculous as that might sound to say out loud or hear out loud. But the fact is, their primary spokesman is a giant asshole. So by association, they are too. And that's something that is often lost. So Danielle Laporte probably gave me the best advice about this that I ever heard. And she said that she doesn't write or share about an experience until she's done processing it. Now, there's another reason for this. You know, like the reality is, you know, vulnerability when you're going through a difficult situation. Yeah, it might sound appealing. Like, you know, you read memoirs of like heartbreaks and, and these tragic stories. and You think, oh, that's my path to like fame and success. But you notice those people are always writing about those experiences after they've processed them, after they've gone through the experiences, after what they've learned from them. Because this is harsh, but it's true in the public eye, uh, you know a lack of confidence is repelling 
Nobody wants to hear about your fucking problems other than your therapist. And the problem is that when you act, you know, as, as I did in that moment, I was treating my audience as my therapist. And that's completely inappropriate because of the fact that that's not their job. They don't want to hear about your problems. They want you to solve theirs. Um, and that's that's a tough thing to, to understand because it's a really delicate balance, you know. And then there's this other sort of really toxic thing that people do, and that is to use vulnerability as a marketing tactic um, where they tell these like heart wrenching stories and, and share them on social media. And you're like, oh, and of course, they get attention for it. But the thing is that that's actually incredibly manipulative. It's not authentic to do that because of the fact that you're using it for personal gain. So this is like a, is such a nuanced question. Obviously, you know, I've written a 9000 word blog post about the psychology of building an audience. So I have a lot to say about this, uh, as you might imagine. Um, and probably by the time you air this, that post will be live uh, because I just finally put the finishing touches on it. But I've spent like almost nine weeks working on it. Um, and, and part of that was because I had to really think about this. There's a guy, uh, Stephen Goldstein, who wrote a book called The Turn On, uh, how the most powerful people from Washington to Wall Street to Hollywood you know, make us like them. And the truth is that, you know, one, nobody wants you to be 100% authentic, no matter what they say. They want you to be the version of you that they love and expect from all that. So the example, you know, there are a couple of things that I think about with this, you know, one of he, he basically goes into all these really interesting traits and sub traits, because he was a producer for Oprah, he worked in Congress. So he literally has been around all of these really powerful and influential people. But he kept notes, you know, in all this time about what it was that made people likable. And he just basically kept a diary. And then, you know, one of the things that he pointed out was reliability. Now, what do we mean by reliability? Not just consistently, but how you show up and how people expect you to show up. So I'll give you two examples of this. Um, uh, I don't know if you've seen the TV show Friday Night Lights, probably my favorite show of all time. So good. And so, you know, when my roommates and I first moved into this place in Boulder, uh, we I, I've seen all six seasons like four times. That's how much I like the show. Uh, and I was more than happy to watch it again. And the thing is, you know, we watched what that must be like 90 episodes for five, six seasons, whatever it is. Right. And my roommate, Matt, had never seen the movie version of Friday Night Lights. But what happened is in his mind, the person he expected as a football coach was Coach Taylor, you know, Kyle Chandler. And when we turn the movie on and Billy Bob Thornton is the fucking football coach, the level of dissonance and disappointment was, you know, shocking. It was like, oh, I mean, it made him cringe because the thing is he'd come to rely on the Coach Taylor character as the person he expected. And suddenly that expectation is, is not met. And so he's disappointed. Um, one other example. Uh, I mean, I don't know how old you are. We must be semi-close in age if we started tinkering with this stuff around the same time, possibly. But I was in college in, you know, the early, late mid to late 90s. I graduated 2000. Summer after my freshman year, U2 was touring. And, like, I have always loved U2. And the Discotheque album was the tour that they happened to be on. And the funny thing about that is Discotheque was a real departure from sort of the U2 that we all kind of know and love, like weird songs like Numb and all this weird electronic shit. Um, <clears throat> personally, I think that album sucks, whether people agree or not. But what was interesting to notice is when you went to the concert, uh, they started out playing their new stuff, right? The stuff from Discotech and eh, the crowd was kind of underwhelmed. The moment they went back to like stuff like With or Without You, you know, where the streets have no name, all that stuff, the crowd erupted because that's the thing they had come to rely on is like, this is the U2 we love. This is the U2 we want. And if you go and look after those albums, 
they return back to that original style. Now, Bono may tell me to go fuck myself because I think that album is so bad, but probably I'll never meet Bono, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, like I'm a huge fan. I just didn't like that album because they violated what I had expected of them. So that's one other component of this. Um, like I said, this is super nuanced. We could talk about this subject for like an entire hour. I, I'm so glad that I didn't realize you had written that post. And so this was top of mind for you. And I, I love that it is because I'm curious then. So it sounds to me like you're suggesting there is a point at which, like using you as an example, you are venture funded. You have, you know, all sorts of people behind you now staking their claim. You know, they're behind your reputation. So your reputation affects them and their business interests yeah. and, and all sorts of stuff. So is there a point then, using you as an example, where you can no longer share a certain level of authenticity? Like you, you can't necessarily be 100% human anymore? I don't think that you can ever be 100% human in the public eye. I mean, and obviously as the audience gets larger and more and more people know who you are, then that diminishes bit by bit. Like you have to be more and more careful. You know, like, so I remember, you know, when I was going through a tough time in 2018, like my book launched and meet my expectations. And I remember writing this, this article on media, but my sister read it and she called me and she said, you should be really mindful about what you write because people hire you to speak at their events because you motivate them. And this kind of shit doesn't motivate them. It actually questions, makes them question whether I should hire you. Like you don't think about those subtle nuances. So I think that the higher the stakes get, I mean, the more you have to lose, the less, you know, you're able to be uh, 100% human. It, authenticity, I think, is the most misunderstood thing about uh, life in the public eye um, and, and, you know, building an audience of any sort. Uh, because, like I said, we don't want 100% authenticity. If we got 100% authenticity from, authenticity from everybody, all we'd be hearing, it, just imagine, like, hearing the unfiltered thoughts of every single person that you follow or yeah, you know, that's true. look up to like behind closed doors. There's a lot of things you don't see. You know, it, it, Seth Godin always talks about that book, understanding comics, right? Where he says that the story takes place between the panels. Now, the funny thing is it's a perfect metaphor for the life we put on social media, right? Like you don't see what happens between the, the Instagram uploads and the status updates because that's not a good story. Like people basically present this overwhelmingly positive, you know, airbrushed version of their lives on social media, um, especially because, you know, they're building a brand like you don't see like the hot girl, you know, posting pictures of herself, like no makeup on, like, you know, every now and then you do as like a quote unquote example of this is what I look like for real. But for the most part, that's not I mean, perfect example. Go look at Amanda Cerny's Instagram feed. Most of her pictures, she looks really hot. Um, every now and then she'll put a picture up saying, oh, this is what I look like without makeup. But that's just basically the funny thing is that, again, part of that is to appeal to the audience and make herself appear humble um, and connect with them in a way that says, oh, OK, you're beautiful, but I can relate to the fact that you're not always beautiful. Uh, and so I think that that's that's the it's that's actually a perfect example of that fine line of, OK, too far, you know, but you're not having her post like, you know, raunchy pictures of her, like giving her boyfriend blowjobs, even though that would be a hundred percent authentic. Um, you know, that, like you could call that a hundred percent authentic. Yeah. It's like, Oh, this is what yeah. I do, but that would be completely inappropriate. Absolutely. Um, and so it's, I think finding that, that line is the funny thing is that, like I said, this is so nuanced that you almost have to cross that line to find it. Uh, and look, there are a lot of people who don't agree with me on this. Um, Despite the fact that if you look at their public presence, 
this all actually plays out. Um, you know, like, look, the funny thing is that the people who, you know, we know and love, like, you know, many of them are our friends. I've interviewed many of them. Like, you know, it's funny to listen to them outside of the context in which, you know, that happens because you'll hear them drop F-bombs. Like, I was like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, and I think that that's the other thing is that, you know, media is really powerful at creating misperceptions, too. Um, so Glenn Beck is a perfect example of this. He's the reason that, you know, Wall Street Journal bestseller happened because he found this book. And look, I'm, you know, a pot smoking surfer from Berkeley, like Glenn Beck and I have <laughs> next to nothing in common. Um, you know, and the thing is that when I when people found out that I was going to be on Glenn Beck, like the reactions from my audience were, God, that guy's an asshole, this and that. I mean, because based on what they saw and what they knew of Glenn, which rightfully so, like Glenn, you know, has shaped that perception. Um, they thought he was this like god awful right wing, you know, racist asshole. But that's not the truth. You know, like the guy has, you know, gay black people who work at his company, like Glenn Beck, you know, and that that to me was one of those things like you you kind of realize like, oh, okay, the person you are seeing on TV is not the person that you meet in real life. And I don't care, you know, what anybody says. Yes, like, look, another example, right? I've had podcast listeners set me up on dates with friends of theirs. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, you got to meet this guy. He's like the most amazing listener, which I am on the podcast. But in the other context, I'm the worst fucking listener. I talk too much. And literally, I will get phone calls <laughs> saying, oh, you know, I can't believe this. I set you up with my friend. And the one thing that shocks me is she said you talk too much. And I was like, yeah, that's because you set her up on a date with the host of the podcast, not with Srini. There's a difference. And so no matter, you know, whether you like it or not, like you are playing a role in the public eye, like you are a character. Um, and that's just how it is. Nobody will like people hate that thought because it seems inauthentic. But go read any book about social intelligence. Go read any of Robert Greene's books. You will see this dynamic play out. Every public figure on some level is performing. You and I are on this podcast. Like there are probably things I want to say that I'm like, eh, no, that's going to that's a potential nightmare. Sure. I think we naturally self-filter. You know, like I, I remember I had a conversation with my friend Elizabeth D'Alto, and I won't even repeat what I said to her, um, but I said it, and I remember explaining the question to, you know, two friends that I, one of my business partners was working at the time, and he's like, Shrini, I know you well enough to know there's no fucking way it came out sounding like that. He was like, you recorded it, right? And I said, yeah. He was like, play it back. He was like, holy shit. He was like, you sound so misogynistic in this. He was like, this is a nightmare about to happen. He was like, you've got to tell her that she can't air this. And I had to call her back and, and say, hey, I, I need you not to air this because the answer I gave, I was like, this is incredibly, I was like, you may not see it that way, but it, it doesn't matter because the thing is, the audience will interpret it that way. And that's something you have to be really mindful of in all of these situations. Okay, wait. So you are aware of yourself that you are a fantastic listener when you are interviewing guests on your podcast. Yeah. But you're also aware that you, in other social contexts, you don't feel you are a good listener. Do you, I, that, that blows my mind in the sense of, I would imagine that you, you think, right? It would translate you would over. want to be a better listener it's in those other contexts. It's not that I don't want to be. Okay. It's okay. It's not that I don't want to be. 
there uh, trust me this is a paradox i've been trying to resolve for so long that i'm like okay i, I probably yeah, need to like go see it is it's and because you've proven you have the ability right because i mean oh, listen to your podcast no and you're a fantastic interviewer yeah i mean there's no question i have the ability but the funny thing is i don't know what it is like maybe part of it is it's like oh this is what i do for work this is when i get to part of it i mean i mm. listen to people all day long you know and that's i've had girls who dated me like oh maybe that's why the other thing is i am super add right so my mind moves about a million miles an hour and this is why i'd be a terrible life coach because i'm like okay when i'm done listening to somebody's bullshit i'm like all right that's it let's move on i've processed this in my mind there's nothing else i need to hear about this even though they probably need to get all sorts of stuff out so the weird thing is it's not that i'm actually not listening i hear everything and i can repeat things back to you that people have told me you know months ago like i even remember my roommate stories better than he remembers his own um like i'll correct him and be like isn't that no this is what you said about this. Like, how the hell do you know that i was because like, i heard it um but the moment i lose interest which happens way too quickly uh then it just goes to shit you know it's uh it, it's very weird i don't even know how to explain it beyond that yeah that's that's fascinating that is a paradox you mentioned your sister um, earlier, yeah. and I was reading, you've written so many, you know, different uh, posts and articles and stuff, but um, it seems like your sister's wedding had a, a very large impact on you as a person. And I'm curious, what would you say is the, the biggest takeaway you had from that wedding for you personally? Oh, God, that, there's so many, so many different ones, but I'll tell you what, so, you know, I mean, I can remember culture, um, as you know, from sort of the Indian matchmaking experience where one, the fact that I am not in any way at all, like part of the mold that people expect of Indian people as it is, like I always jokingly say I was the show's token misfit. Like they literally needed somebody who didn't fit the mold and that's why I got cast. But I think to get to my age, um, you know, I'm 42 now and to still be single, particularly going to your younger siblings wedding, it's almost sacrilegious, you know, and like I, I thought in all, you know, literally I think I've attended every single friend's wedding without a date. And I always thought I was like, at this point, the only date, only wedding I'm going to have a date to is my own. Um, and, you know, I remember I was literally in tears in my therapist office. I was like, man, I'm like, you know, I was like, of all the places I could be without a date, come on, like my sister's wedding. Um, and, you know, my sister was like, you could bring a friend. And, you know, I, I was about to. But I don't know what happened. I think in my mind, I thought, wait a minute, it, here's what I realized. It was like, this isn't about me. It's about her. It's her day, not mine. Who gives a shit if I'm there without a date? Um, and once that happened, you know, in my mind, I was like, wait a minute. I know two things. I look really good in a tux and I give amazing fucking speeches. Um, nobody here stands a chance against me. I'm a fucking professional speaker. Um, so I was like, <laughs> OK, wait a minute. I'm like, I got a captive audience of all these Indian aunties who want me to get married to hell with it. I'm going to put them to work. I'm like, let them do my bidding for me. So I literally I got on stage and I put up a picture uh, of my a slide with my phone number on the screen. And I said, you know, for all you want to know when I'm getting married, you can text profiles, pictures and all other relevant information to this number. I'll expect a full report on your progress by the end of the week. Now let's get to why we're actually here. And the thing is, I took something that, you know, I knew was going to potentially be a ridiculous and awkward conversation. And I fucking just disarmed that bomb before anybody had a chance to even ask me about it. 
And the funny thing is, so, you know, the speech was a hit and, you know, I ended up getting a paid speaking engagement out of it. Um, and all night long, oh, wow. like, people are coming to my <laughs> sister and like, oh, your brother is such an amazing, gives such a great speech. She's like, he has the ultimate unfair advantage. He does this for a living. Um, you know, so that's the thing that I think was the biggest realization was that it was about her and not about me. Um, and to kind of see that was really powerful. But not only that, I think it brought me it brought our family very, very close together. You know, it was one of those things where even after the wedding, we we're like, God, it was like, what are we going to do now? Like, this has, you know, been our lives for a year and a half. Now, keep in mind, Indian weddings are massive. And between the fact that both my sister and my brother-in-law are Indian, they had to have a second reception. Because I remember they're like, I was like, the only place you're going to find to put all these people, like, unless you're planning on excavating the Titanic, I don't know how you're going to fit all of these people <laughs> onto one place. So then, you know, they had a second reception. By the second reception, I was like, I get it. You guys are married. I love you guys. But I'm finally over this. Let's get on with our lives. Uh, but no, I mean, it honestly, like it brought us all a lot closer. Um, I think the, but the big, big takeaway was that, you know, it, it had to be about her, not me. When I read, um, you wrote that second book that was online for free called the scenic route, what I've learned from a life that hasn't turned out the way I thought it would. And I read it and it, it's such a beautiful piece of writing, but what I get so much from and it's probably my read. least read book ever <laughs> like i don't think anybody has read that that's so funny because and it was it's one of my so favorites to write. yes it is yeah and the big theme i got from that and i think it's because it's very parallel to my life right now is just the the way that you love your family but more so the way you seem to like redis have rediscovered that love for your family and like realize the important role just not just your sister but yeah. i know you lived with your parents for a time you know what, what some would consider later in life and you just sort of seem to have this renewed perspective on on your parents like what what did that kind of teach you living with them for a little bit later in life well so here's the the, the thing right uh like watching your parents age before your eyes is really it's scary um but you also i think have almost this visceral understanding of the fact that wait a minute they're not going to be here forever i mean don't get me wrong man like my mom and i still have pointless fucking battles over all sorts of bullshit you know like she still yells at me because i always leave the cap off the toothpaste and you know like we argue over things it's not like a, you know like there aren't problems like you know it's not like we're just this like you know happy you know brady bunch family but watching that one you begin to see that they're not going to be around forever like you get this visceral experience of it um the other I think is, is, you know, you, you look at it and, you know, my dad doesn't read my books. He doesn't listen to my podcast. I, I think my dad has only ever read one, you know, one of my books and it was only because it was an audio book um, is weird because he's a college professor who doesn't read books, which I've never understood. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I remember the first time I was really hurt that like, oh, he's not going to read my book or whatever. And it like kind of hit me really personally. But then I thought about it. I was like, wait a minute. I wouldn't have even been able to write the damn book if he hadn't been okay with the fact that here I am into my mid to late thirties living at home when I should be out, you know, building a career or like be on my own. Um, and once I understood that, I was like, wait a minute, like this wouldn't have been possible without him. Uh, so that, that's a big one, but you know, I, for the longest time, yeah, maybe I wrote this somewhere. I'm sure I wrote this somewhere. I don't know if it's in the scenic crowd, but I said, you know, like I thought for that entire time that I lost, you know, eight years of my life. Um, and in some way I did, like I missed my entire thirties, which is why, you know, I live with two 30 year old roommates now. And, you know, I mean, my life looks nothing like an average 42 year old's life. Uh, but 
what I realized from that was that I didn't lose 10 years of my life or eight years of my life. I got to spend that time with my parents that most of us never will get in adult life. Um, you know, like now I'm, I'm living out of state. I don't, I mean, thanks to the pandemic, like I haven't seen my parents in close to a year. Uh, I mean, I'll see them at Thanksgiving, but that was one of those moments where you're like, okay, you know what? Uh, I mean, to the point where when I was living in San Diego, there was a period, I interviewed this guy, Frank Ostaseski, who was the director of the Zen Hospice Project. And I told him, I was like, you know, for the longest time, my fear was that I would end up alone. And now I told him, I said, I think my biggest fear is that like my dad or, or my mom won't be there for some significant life event, like getting married or having kids. And he said, well, don't wait for those moments, like spend time with them now. Um, so I go, I would go home for dinner every Sunday, um, you know, and just hang out with my parents. And it was kind of weird, like this place that I've been trying to escape for 10 years or eight years thinking off oh, to hell of this, I'm never coming back here. I found myself there once a week instead. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, I feel really lucky to have the parents that I do. Uh, you know, yeah, we don't always see eye to eye, but geez, I mean, so many people have it so much worse. Like, I, I mean, I had a friend who barely talked to his mother, one of my best friends. I mean, I mean, now they're reconciling, but uh, you know, there are some people who, like, you know, at a certain point, the relationship with the parent ends, and, and in many cases, it's justified, you know, because those parents were not good parents to them. Yeah, I share that that notion of like realizing this time we have with our parents maybe that was unexpected and we didn't necessarily plan it ends up being the well, best time well if you, um what's his name uh the guy who runs wait but why tim urban has a blog post about this call the tail end um which if you read it it'll make you cry and i you know i don't know if you read the scenic route on amazon or the kindle version but i actually created a visual version of it using adobe spark and it's really fucking cool <laughs> I read the Adobe Spark version. Yeah, Maybe that's that was, why I'm so captivated by it. It was just the way you formatted it, too. It was beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, no, that was a blast. Like, And I didn't write that to get people to read it. I just wrote it because I wanted to. Like, It was just fun. You know, That's all I cared about doing was to create something. Yeah, you talk about um, reading that other person's post, and I would cry. I, when I was reading the scenic route, you had that passage about families, um, about how we'll always take it for granted that they're there to pick up the phone, and they'll always be there for us, and, you know... You never know when you know when they won't be, and I was just crying after I read that. I was. Well, it's like, kind of funny. Like you're one of you're probably one of the handful of people who's read enough detail to be able to talk to me about it, um, <laughs> which makes me think maybe there's something there that I haven't really like I haven't pushed it enough to like you know squeeze what I can out of it. Like like I said, I didn't write that to sell copies. I wrote it literally to just put something out into the world that I wanted to create. Maybe that's why it resonates so much. I mean, when I, I I was reading it to do research to talk to you, you know, so I was just digging up everything I could and. I stumbled upon it and I started reading it and I realized it was quite long, but I couldn't stop reading it. I had to keep scrolling down because you just, and maybe it's because you weren't trying to sell anything. You weren't trying to gain attention. You were just maybe therapeutically writing. It made me think that I, you know, I need to, I need to, I need to send that to my email list because I haven't, uh, I mean, I mentioned it once, but now you're making me think that I should send it to my email list. Yeah, it's just so interesting given our conversation here, you know, and chatting about this idea of authenticity and like how, you know, we all maybe aren't being, you know, just especially talking to you now, I feel like when I was reading that, I felt like I got to know you. You know what I mean? Like, and that obviously you probably my most personal piece of writing, I think that I've it done. It felt like it. I yeah. mean, it really felt, it felt like exactly what you're describing that you just wrote that as almost like a journal and yeah. you just happened to post it online and it wasn't necessarily meant for anyone in particular except yeah. you. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it really was. Um, yeah. I mean, it was the that was, you know, I think it was right after Audience of One. I didn't have a book deal, but I knew I wanted to write something. And I just I, I mean, I was writing these essays down, you know, while I was in India. Um, and, you know, bit by bit, it just kind of came together into this thing. And that's what it ended up being. It's fantastic. Yeah. Thank I would you. recommend that you yeah spread the word a little bit. Yeah, I probably will. Now you're making me think I should. <laughs> How do you deal with, you know, as a creator, you're a fellow creator, I'm a creator. How do you deal with the opinions, the expectations of people outside your own head? You know, especially with like you're building a podcast and now you have more than a podcast. You have a little bit of a media empire going and you you said you're venture funded now. I mean, there are probably people all the time, your audience, your investors, you know, influencers, whoever, that probably expect you to be at a certain place and whether you are or not, do you feel like, how do you deal with that, that pressure? And do you care anymore? Here's the, the interesting thing about that, right? Is that there, you know, I have, my funny thing is I've written about all this stuff, ironically. I mean, when you write as much as I do, that's inevitable. But I, I remember I wrote about, about the, this sort of idea of this eternal gap between who you are and who you want to be, right? Because we all have this sort of mythical idea of an I've made it moment. You know, like John Dumas, John Lee Dumas asked people the question on his show, um, you know, do you ever feel like you have a made it moment? And it's like, no, fuck. I, I mean, anybody who says that is lying. That's bullshit. There's no such thing. Um, because the thing is, like, what happens, you know, this is just human psychology. You, you undergo this process of hedonic adaptation, right, where – what happens is let's let's just use the example of startups. Um, so let's say that you are you know a Silicon Valley guy. You have this startup. You have this like successful exit. You know now you have fifty or sixty million dollars in cash. You're like fuck. I'm I'm amazing. Then you move into a nice apartment building. And it turns out your neighbor has three hundred million dollars in cash and has sold four startups. Well, guess what? Now you have a new reference group. You're no longer the winner who sold a startup. You're the loser who didn't sell three. Um, and so your frame of reference changes. Now, the, there's a, we had a guest named Sasha Hines who talked to me about this. She said, you know, if you look at the Olympic podium, the person uh, who win, the, wins the silver is the least happy person on that podium. The person who wins the bronze is thrilled because they ha they're on the podium. Of course, the person who wins the gold is thrilled because they won the gold. The person who wins the silver, in their mind, well, all they think is, I didn't win the gold. Then <laughs> um, that's the thing. That's their benchmark, you know? So the benchmark keeps changing. So that, you know, the only antidote I know of that, uh, to that, is to have your own standards for success and come up with your own definition. Um, I think that one of the things that we don't, I mean, and this is not just sort of on a creator level, but as a society, we don't have a clear definition of what it means to have enough, you know? And the problem with that is, you know, like we think that relentless ambition is a good thing, but relentless ambition pushed to the point of diminishing returns is precisely what has put us into the society that we're in with the problems that we have. Like Donald Trump is the literal embodiment of self-interest taken to the point of diminishing returns. Look, he's, believe it or not, actually done some good things while he's been in the White House. Um, the problem is that his self-interest and, you know, his narcissism is actually 
burying all that stuff. Like nobody writes about any of that stuff because he's such a jackass. Uh, you know, like he's done stuff for criminal justice reform, and you're like, okay, well, great. Um, <clears throat> the problem is, you know, that's 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 self interest. You know, that is self interest to the point of diminishing returns. But you're seeing it, you know, everywhere, even in Silicon Valley, right? Like, how much is enough to say, okay, we need you know more users? Like, you know, Paul Paul Jarvis. Um, was a friend of mine. He said, you know, in any field other than business, infinite growth is called cancer. You know, uh, so it's it's an interesting balancing act of, um, you know, knowing where you want to be and, and, you know, not being there because there's no sort of point of arrival. Right. You're always kind of chasing false horizons. And Ryan Holiday summed this up better than I ever could when we're talking about it. You know, Ryan has what, like eight books, all of which are Wall Street Journal bestsellers now, like sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And, you know, the thing that he told me, he said, you know, like people have this idea that there's some next level of significance. And so, you know, it's like, oh, when I have, you know, um, you know, millions of people reading my books, uh, then I'll be happy. Then my parents will be proud, whatever. Uh, but he said, that's not what people do. Nobody does that. Nobody wakes up and says, yeah, OK, I have it made. Like I have everything I ever wanted. Like, dude, getting a book deal was like the dream when, you know, I started in 2009, 2010. I was like, oh, and like, you know, I was on cloud nine for about a month. And then all my normal problems in my life were still there. It wasn't like getting the book deal changed any of that. Like I was still dealing with all my insecurities and all that. And of course, the the funny thing is, like the moment I get a book deal, like especially because my book deal was with Penguin Portfolio, where like the authors are Ryan Holiday, Simon Sinek, and Seth Godin. Like, great, I'm the biggest loser at my imprint. You know, that's not <laughs> true, but that's the thing. Like now you have this basis for comparison that's completely different. Um, so I, I think that part of it is one recognizing that I think one being aware of the fact that that is actually what happens. But, you know, so Ryan said, you know, like what happens then is, you know, somebody hits a single. They're like, OK, that's a you know, they hit a home run in the World Series. It's like, no, OK, whatever. That's not it. It's a grand slam in the World Series. Uh, then it's like, no, I need the highest contract in baseball. And the funny thing is, he said, this is good on the aggregate level because it drives a lot of accomplishment. Um, he said, you know, if nobody if nobody wanted to be president, everybody would just stay a senator, you know, and, and we wouldn't progress. Like, it's good in the fact the way that, you know, Elon Musk didn't stop at PayPal, um, him creating SpaceX and Tesla is good for humanity. But on the individual level, it's not, you know, it, it's like a recipe for dissatisfaction. So. The truth is, I don't know that you ever are exactly where you want to be because, you know, let's say that, you know, you get married. It's like, oh, well, now you want to have kids. And it's like, okay, cool. Now you want to have another kid. And now you want to buy a house. Like, it keeps changing constantly. Like, and that's just the way life works. So I think that that is part of it. But the other thing I think that's really important, and I, particularly creators are not good about this, um, they tend to live in sort of a conditional future. And they look at the prize as opposed to the process, whereas, you know, the process is what leads you to the process is where the work happens. And the process is where you're going to spend all your time. You know, it, you know, like you let's say you write a book, right? And you spend two years writing the book for two days. It's like the talk of the town. But the thing is, it took two years. It was two years of, of sitting in a room, nobody paying attention or giving two shits about your book that actually led to the book. Um, and that, I think, is probably the thing, the closest thing to an antidote I know of is to sort of focus on, on what you can do today, focus on the process. And, you know, look, we, there's no guarantee with anything, um, whether you write the best book in the world or not. You know, sometimes books strike, you know, in culture in a way that, you know, something like Mark Manson's Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, like nobody could have predicted that. Um Nobody knew that that was going to be the impact that it had. And, and, you know, think about it. Like, how do you follow that up? Imagine if that's your first book. And then from there, it's like, oh, OK, this isn't, you know, 
Uh, I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this. It's like, how do you, you kind of almost have to come to terms with the fact that maybe I am not going to produce something of that impact again. Um, and if your happiness depends on that, you're screwed. Do you feel like you have, like, do you feel comfortable with success in the level of success you feel you've achieved? Or do you feel like you're always, I, I feel that what you said as a creator, you're always kind of going after the next thing. You're always kind of, you know, trying to get that prize. Do you feel like you're still doing that or you feel like you've figured out, no, I'm just content with the journey here? Well, to some degree, yes. It's. It, I think it's a perhaps the most complicated balance is to figure out this sort of balance between fulfillment and ambition, right? Like you want to be fulfilled. And I think that comes from finding joy day to day, but you, you know, you have goals like, you know, I mean, to me at this point, um, you know, I was talking to our investors the other day because we got a new partner who's taken over our fund. And I said, look, guys, I'm like, I don't want to build an audience for the sake of my own ego. Like, I don't care about the audience getting big. So it's like, oh, string you're out. Like, I'm like, no, what I want is the ability to influence and shape culture to do effectively what Glenn Beck did for me to have the power to um, highlight important ideas that matter that don't get the voice that they deserve uh, because somebody's not famous. Like, I mean, our reputation at Unmistakable is one of turning down the most famous people on the internet. Like, we literally say no to people that everybody has heard of, and they're always pissed because they're like, I, I literally had a publicist say, Srini, you've turned down four people that I sent you. What exactly are you looking for? And I told her, I was like, I choose everybody based on personal curiosity, so I have no fucking idea what I'm looking for. Um, there's no way for you to game that. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, like, I want real stories with real people that are realistic models of possibility for my listeners. I don't want, you know, famous people who they can't relate to. Um, so I always look for people that you haven't heard in a thousand other podcasts. Our most popular guests are the ones that nobody's ever heard of. Um, and they're usually the best ones. I've noticed that in my podcast too. Granted, I'm much, much, much younger. And my podcast is much, much younger than than yours. But in this short time, I've noticed, and I remember you wrote about this, and it really clicked with me that the the people, because I'm very similar, right? Like it's curiosity that always drives me to have conversations with people. But as a creator and a publisher, you often think, well, if there's a story with someone a little bit higher profile, maybe there's something to be gained mutually beneficial. And I found exactly what you're suggesting. Yeah, that's that not true. Very often, no, it's the people who you really were curious about, who more than likely nobody knows about. Yeah. That a you feel like you had the best conversation with, and b generally resonates the best with the audience more totally. so than the Michael Jordans of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing is, one there are numerous reasons for that, right? One is that all these famous people get interviewed all the time, so they're like spouting sound bites and the same old bullshit on every oh, it's show. Terrible. And I, I've gotten to the point where I don't even want to book people like no, that. No, no, I don't. And I don't. Like I you mean, said, it's like a we literally. Have, well, we have on our contact form a, a, a statement that says we reject more people than Harvard, Stanford, and Yale combined. So please give some serious thought to how you pitch us. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I mean, I, I'm telling you, like, we've had everybody from like recently we got a pitch from, uh, you know, Mark Victor Hansen's publicist. So I'm like, yeah, chicken soup for the soul. Really? I'm like, that's so contrary to like it. it honestly, it's almost like. Yeah, I'm like it would be like a sellout move to do that. Now, keep in mind, there may be a really amazing story there. Like, I don't know. I don't know Mark Victor Hansen personally, but I don't like the chicken soup for the soul books. I think they're bullshit. I think they're basically platitudes and nonsense, um, even if they've sold millions of copies. Like, that's just not it's not my jam. It kind of there's I don't know. I don't feel like there's anything unmistakable about them. You know, sure. Um, 
But, you know, I mean, and the thing is, again, that's another example of something that just hit on culture. You know, it was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Like, this is something that for some reason had a resonance um, with people. So, you know, I think that, like, when I look at this, you know, I think that to me, the benefit of a bigger audience would be the ability to shape and influence culture to move causes forward that I care about, you know, and to put a spotlight on things that really matter. Um, and, and that's, that's also played a role in how I've chosen my guests too. You know, like I, I, one of my former guests is a guy named Sean Dove, who was the founder of the campaign for black male achievement. And I was like, wait a minute, like given the time we're living in, this is an incredibly important conversation to have. And I only found out about him because he happened to be one of my listeners and I had no idea for the longest time. I was like, dude, am I seriously? I was like, you got to be a guest. Um, you know, and then that's the thing. Like you just find random people, you know, based on, on curiosity and being open-minded. But yeah, it's like I said, it's funny. I like your questions cause there's no, there's no way I can answer like with any sort of like formulaic answer. And so there, there is something about that, that like, again, you know, we're, we're talking about so many subtle nuances of, of human psychology. Like so much of this is, um, it's a journey of like self-awareness and exploration and, you know, like digging into your wounds and, um, accepting certain things. Like, you know, I think I've come to the terms with the fact that there's a possibility I won't get a book deal again. Um, you know, I've tried for two years. My agent was like, now nah, your publisher won't want to buy this. And I'll say, all right, you know what? I've resisted this idea for two years. And I was like, you know what? My most popular book is the one that I self-published. Why the hell am I going to sit around waiting for Penguin to say, yes, I've already gotten their approval once and I don't need it anymore. You know, I got the experience. I got the credibility from it. Yeah, it's it doesn't matter as much as it once did to me. And like, I want to write books because I want to write books and nobody can stop me from doing that. And not only that, when I don't have a publisher, you know, dictating how I'm going to write the book, I can write however I want. Yeah, you, you strike me as someone that would almost be more comfortable self-publishing and self-creating just because that you can shape yeah, everything. There, there are pros and cons to both, man. Like, I'll tell you what you do gain from, particularly if you have a good publisher. I mean, like, portfolio is as good as it gets, like, as far as the quality of the books that they produce. You know, I mean, think about their authors, like Seth Simon, you know, Jonathan Fields. They, sure. they tend to, like, really... And so what you learn from that is craft. Like, you actually learn how to structure arguments. You learn, you learn a process of taking something complex and, you know, a lengthy project, having a long-term view on it, and bringing it to life. And I think that that skill... Regardless of whether your book becomes, you know, a Wall Street Journal bestseller or sells, you know, a couple thousand copies, that skill of taking something abstract and making something concrete over it and sticking with something for, you know, up to a year is something that will serve me well for the rest of my life. There's literally no project that I look at and say, oh, that's way too complicated for me to do. Now, launching SpaceX, maybe. I don't have the, you know, astrophysics skills for that shit, but um, – for the most part, like I don't look at most creative projects. It's like I made a documentary um, earlier this year or like at the end of last year about the women in my family um, when the iPhone 11 came out. I don't know the first thing about making documentaries, but I know a lot about how to structure a project and finish it, um, which is actually the most useful skill I got from writing a book. And that to me will always be, you know, a, a gift that pays for dividends for decades. What inspired you to make a documentary about the women in your family? Well, the funny thing is, um, I, so funny story, and I went to business school at Pepperdine because I got rejected from every business school I applied to or got waitlisted, and I wanted to work in entertainment. 
That was the whole reason I was in LA. In fact, people would ask me what I was going to do when I go to business school. And I would say, as long as it has nothing to do with the internet, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> like, you know, so I guess universe has a sense of humor. Um, so I wanted to work in television and I wanted to choose what went on the air at a television network. Um, I just, you know, I mean, I, I've always been like a media junkie. I love TV. I love movies. Funny enough, I can't stand, I, I really don't like podcasts. Like I don't listen to them. Uh, you know, I, I listen to like the New York Times daily, but that's about it. And I, you know, I'll review interviews that I've done with people because I, you know, I always get ideas for things to write about. But, you know, like I can't stand audiobooks. Um, you know, so audio is my least preferred, you know, medium of consumption. But I think that what I realized deep down was that I just wanted to create things and I wanted to actually choose what went on, not only choose what went on in the air, but, you know, create it. And I get to do both with unmistakable. But, you know, film had always been one of those things that captivated me. I was like, God, I'm like, I want to do this. And iPhone 11 came out and I was watching, you know, and I, I got one. And I remember watching the things that people were creating because the video quality was just so off the charts in comparison to the one before it was like this quantum leap and i was like holy shit this is what's possible now um so it's like okay well if this is what's possible uh i want to do something with this so i actually enrolled in ken burns master class uh and learned you know sort of what goes into making a documentary i got this book called how to shoot video that doesn't suck at the recommendation of my literary agent and I just looked at, I read through it and I, I got to work and I was just like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to, I got myself a gimbal and I just wandered around and took video for, you know, days on end because, you know, it was at Christmas time and I needed all my relatives to be there to actually film the things I wanted to film. Uh, but it was good because I got to practice. And by the time they were all there, it was like, okay, I shot like, you know, probably half a dozen interviews. I mean, I probably recorded maybe a couple hours worth of footage and then, you know, I sat down and I was like, okay, cool. I know how to tell a story. That's like my gift. Like it is that I've learned how to structure things in a linear order, no matter how they were shot. And, uh, you know, and for a subject, I was like, okay, what's interesting about the, my family, well, they're all amazing cooks. I'm like, yeah, but that's, that's that in and of itself is not interesting. I was like, wait a minute, the thing, the little angle that's fascinating is they don't use recipes and they're the most amazing cooks in the world. And so I created this little mini film called zero recipes. Um, you know, I, the, the thing is like, to me, uh, that was the beginning of, of sort of other things like, you know, from, from having dug into my work, it like, you know, runs the spectrum of writing podcasts, animated shorts. I never wanted to be labeled or defined by one expression, medium of expression. Um, so uh, to the point where even when podcast movement asked me to keynote their first conference, I said, I'll do it on one condition. I can't, I won't talk about podcasting. They're like, what the hell? I'm like, yeah, that's my condition. Um, <laughs> if you guys want me, I will do it on the condition that I don't have to talk about podcasting because that's mind numbing. Nobody wants to hear about how to optimize downloads and shit like that. I said, look, guys, I'm a storyteller who happens to use podcasts as one of the mediums in which I tell stories. Um, and that was very key. And, and, you know, it, it ended up being a good speech and, and all that. But, um, yeah, I mean, so that, that's that's kind of why, uh, you know, the documentary is so like, I, I think I just have this like impulse that I can't deny to create things like I, my default, the moment I see a new tool or a piece of technology, my first instinct is, oh, what can I make with this? Where does that come from? I, I share that. And I'm curious for you. Does that come from a place of like when you create you feel like the dopamine or the fulfillment yeah, or is there, it somewhere else there's probably a component of that the dopamine thing is interesting because like the better you get at something the more you get that sort of rush of like oh of, of being able to be in flow right um and once you do like you don't want to stop like you know I'm, i probably wrote like two thousand words today like i didn't that's not a normal occurrence but like i got into the zone and i was like oh okay this is why i do this because it's this like joy uh you know that the sort of impulse to create i guess it's always been there um 
you know, like I've always been tinkering, you know, stuff like, you know, my dad gets a video camera when I'm a kid and, you know, my math teacher is teaching us these like, you know, logic puzzles in class using these stories. And instead of doing the logic puzzle, I literally took all the those logic puzzles and created a version of them uh, and made a story about the people in my class using my dad's video camera, which had absolutely nothing to do with any of it. Like, you know, so I was like burning matchbox cars, you know, making jokes about how this person drove this car uh, as one of my classmates. And like, you know, it was just, you know, and then, you know, we would go find the most beat up piece of shit car that we could find and be like, yeah, this math teacher was seen stealing this car. Like, I mean, which had nothing to do with any of this. But um that you know i think that that's just always been there i mean that, that comes down to curiosity right like i just you know like i go to product on almost daily i'm like oh we'll see what's new here and what's something new that would allow me to make something cool that i can't make right now um and, and you know we're in a fortunate time and that you know we have the ability to create in a way we never could like i, I think that that's a beautiful thing on the, the flip side of that it's also harder than ever to stand out um compared to like when i started like i i got a 10-year head start on what has become a massive cultural trend it's you know like that's the thing that i think you know is also worth sort of mentioning is that a lot of people have these outlier advantages and i certainly did that you cannot replicate and you know we cannot overlook that like that's an important part of the context in which anybody gets the opportunities they do so i think it's irresponsible to say oh yeah just follow your passion you know follow it to the end of the earth and you'll end up just like me it's like no you might follow your passion right into poverty or death um don't do that you know like think about the context in which the advice you're getting is coming from uh, always like that's the thing that I think we overlook far too often. One thing I've thought about is, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this a lot lately is kind of this idea that if you open yourself up to possibilities, to opportunities, and you know, whether it's the universe interfering, whether it's divine intervention, whatever you believe in or whatever floats your boat, that if you leave yourself open to that, like it works and things can happen. Have you found that like in your career, in your life, in your creativity? I mean, look, there's a grain of truth to that. But the thing is that like a lot of people use that logic to basically sit on their asses burning, you know, incense and, you know, filling their houses with new age bullshit from new age gift shops. It's like, oh, I'm going to manifest a million dollars by sitting here thinking about it. I'm like, no, you're fucking not. Like you do that by actually doing the work. Um Look, don't get me wrong. Look, I think there is a spiritual component to, to a lot of this. But the truth is, like, nobody wants to say this. And it's obnoxious even for anybody self-made to talk about luck because it sounds, it, you know, it seems disingenuous when you talk about luck. It's like, oh, come on, man. Like, you know, you're playing it down. And it's like, but the thing is, there is an element of luck involved. It was damn lucky that I happened to have started a podcast when nobody was listening to them. I mean, you know this because we've been around for about the same time. I mean, when I started Blogcast FM, people thought podcasts were dead. Like, they're like, yeah, oh, this is, you know, like, and I didn't start it because I thought it was like this new hot thing. I was like, no, I'm like, I'm just interested in doing this. It's fun. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, keep in mind, like, I wasn't able to make money off of it then. Um, and we were early to the game. And there were a lot of people who started after me who are, like, far bigger, far more well-known with their shows. Um, so there is a component of this that is spiritual. But, you know, I, I think the real best way to think about this is, you know, if you've seen the David Letterman interview show on Netflix, which is phenomenal, by the way. Um, I love it. Yeah. My it, next guest needs an yeah, introduction. It's so good. And... You know, the first interview that he did was with Barack Obama. And there's a scene at the end. There's a there's a moment at the end where they're talking about uh, luck. Right. 
And Barack Obama looks at him and says, you know, he's like, there are a lot of people who have worked as hard as I have, who have showed up, they've done the work, and they haven't had the success that I have, you know? And Letterman looks at him and he says, Mr. President, I have been nothing but lucky. Now, keep in mind, this is David Letterman, who is arguably one of the most prominent daytime television hosts, willing to say, yes, I got fucking lucky. Even though there's immense amounts of work involved because guess what for all you know there are plenty of people who work just as hard as david letterman did who were there every night at whatever you know comedy place he was performing at and didn't amount to anything and we can't overlook that the the problem you know with personal development literature in general is that it's full of stories of outliers you know and Outliers are so nuanced. Like, we cannot use outliers as models of possibility for everybody. In fact, outliers are terrible role models for most of us. Uh, Because how many of us are going to be the next Steve Jobs, Oprah, or Beyonce? Probably not many. But the thing is, because these are the people whose stories end up in books, these are the people who end up on the cover of magazines, we set that as the standard for success in our society. That's the benchmark by which we measure against. And as a result, we're miserable. Um, so I do think that there is an element of luck involved. Um, I do think that there's also a component of what you're talking about, like being open to opportunity, but I don't think things just fall into your lap. Um, you know, it's like, yes, I got lucky with getting a book deal, the publisher. It was lucky that my editor, Stephanie stumbled on this piece that I wrote on medium, but I also wrote like a thousand articles before that that nobody paid attention to um and the funny thing is she found that piece two years after i wrote it that was just you know serendipitous like it was a fortunate accident like there's a hundred thousand other pieces of content on medium she could have stumbled on anybody's i don't know why she stumbled on mine that day um you know and so that there is that aspect of it um I think that ultimately the only thing you could really do is to focus on the things you control. And in my mind, the only thing you really control as a creator is your creative output. Beyond that, you have almost no control. Like you can't control how the audience responds. You can't control how many people something is going to reach. You can't control, you know, whether it's going to resonate with them. So your only job is to do the work. Yeah, I fully agree about it doesn't just fall in your lap and you can't just sit and wait for things to happen. I'm thinking more keeping an open mind and is it possible to optimize your chances of getting lucky well yeah i I think so i mean it's back to the point that i just mentioned you know like the closest thing you have to be able to optimize your chances of getting lucky is showing up you know um i think that's really it uh you know like it's funny because people have actually done research on this and and talked about like the science of luck and people who believe they're going to get lucky i don't know that i ever believed that i was going to get lucky um I did believe that my efforts were going to lead somewhere worthwhile, um, that there was something about this that made it worth continuing. Um, and I think that that's important. But it had to be – and this is the, the tricky part about purpose, right? Like we can talk all we want about detachment from outcomes, but deep down we're all attached to some outcome. Uh, and I think that for me, like finding purpose in what I do came sadly after that. But there was a point where I had to kind of say, okay, that's it. I'm going to let, you know, let what happened happen. I mean, dude, I wrote on the art of being unmistakable because I gave up on getting a book deal. Like I'd given up, like I thought it wasn't going to happen. That's why I wrote that book. And ironically it led to the book deal. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it again, cause I knew I was like, okay, I can control this. I have something to say. I'm going to say it, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. 
Like my goal was to sell 300 copies of that book. How many did you end up selling? Like 15,000. Oh, that's a pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good exceeding of expectations. Oh man. Srini, thank you so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. And I, I would encourage anyone listening to go or at least Google the scenic route by Srini Rao and, and at least read the online version. Cause it is, it is beautiful. Thanks, man. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com, and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.